I've stopped talking about myself as a public theologian because now everyone calls himself a public theologian. Some of some of which don't have any theological training. <laughs> so I've I've started talking about myself as a politicized theologian. Ooh. That actually, what I'm doing is I am politicizing these structures of belief and confession um, so that we can get free. Hey everybody, welcome to No Small Thing, the podcast dedicated to helping you live a less certain and more curious life. I'm Scott, and I have no Mace with me this week because Mace is at work while I record this opening. Um, So I'm so excited to share this episode with you all this week. Um, This episode is an interview with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, and in terms of what we're trying to do with this podcast, uh, I, I think it's sort of a lifestyle, obviously, of helping ourselves get more curious. So we have our weekly conversations and sometimes we do these interviews. And so for me personally, in terms of my own journey, this conversation with Dr. Robin is exactly the type of conversation I'd like to be having in my life, even if it wasn't for the podcast. Um, if, if I could just arrange uh, a conversation or a coffee or something or a Zoom call, which is exactly what we did with Dr. Robin, and I could just talk to them about all the things we talked about, that would be me living my best life in a way. And the fact that I get to share this conversation with you all, um, or that we get to share this conversation with you all, it's just the sweet spot of living for for me. And I know I speak for Mace too. So um, I hope we get to talk to Dr. Robin so much more in the future. There's certain people that we talk to on here that I would hope are sort of rotating through no small thing and part of what we're trying to do collectively through this podcast. But let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Robin, um, just from Robin's Instagram, which you can follow Dr. Robin on Instagram at I Robin. That's it. That's their handle. I, and then R O B Y N. Um, Robin Henderson Espinoza, PhD, trans Latinx scholar, politicized theologian and public ethicist, author of Actually Autistic, founder of Activist Theology. Um, That's just a little bio from their Instagram. And then um, you can check out their website. You know, Robin's written a bunch of books and articles and actually has a really um, great website with a lot of content. And so Robin's, uh, let's see, Robin's website is same thing, irobin.com, I-R-O-B-Y-N.com. And here is... Uh, Dr. Robin's mission statement. My life's work focuses on connecting the dots between theory and action, helping folks within the dominant culture and white passing folks who are ready to confront their socialization to identify the ways they have been conscripted into supremacy culture by leaning into connection and relationship and by composting existing hierarchies into the kind of transformed culture we long to see emerge. (laughs) So I think what I think you'll experience a little bit in this conversation today is if, if we're interested, if part of getting more curious, I mean, I think part of it is just living a a lighter and more playful life, but I think there's a more serious element to the curiosity, which is trying to create a better world for ourselves and and everybody. Uh, And sometimes we have that desire, but we don't know how to do it Uh, or we're falling asleep or we think we've done enough. And then all of a sudden we realize there's so much more to do. Uh, So, people like Dr. Robin um, help us see the world in in new ways and point to ways that we can exist and be together and have conversations that would be really healing um, for so many people. So, uh, you know, I, I, you guys know we're not professional podcasters. And when I was having this conversation with Dr. Robin, I, I was finding it so hard to be present to being an interviewer because I was so... My, my brain and my imagination were being stretched so far. And, and, and as you, I'm, I'm glad that you all get just to sit and listen and then listen to me stumbling around with my questions. I mean, I mean in, the, in the early days of the podcast, I remember kind of being um, inspired by the Robcast, you know, with Rob Bell. And Rob Bell would interview people, and my wife Marissa and I would just laugh at his clumsy 
responses and his questions and the way he engages with his uh, guests. <laughs> but that's how I feel. That was me with Dr. Robin because I just felt like a little kid in the best of ways. I, I felt like I was learning so much and, and uh, when it came time for me to respond or ask a question, there was like too many questions and too many responses. And the 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 content was so um, wise and 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 I guess serious that a playful response didn't feel tremendously appropriate. So it's like also I don't want to be like drab and boring. Anyways, I'm kind of making this all about me now. But um, I guess I'm inviting you all to laugh along at my clumsy <laughs> interview style and process. Um, but anyways, everybody, this is probably getting too long. Thank you for listening. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you and I hope you check out Dr. Robin's work. Uh, they point you to a new book that they're writing and a few other things too. So please check that all out. Give them a follow on Instagram and we will be back next week with a conversation with our friends, Freddie and Byron from barefoot to Emmaus. Um, But yeah, anyways, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa. Okay, everybody. Well, I'm here with Dr. Robin. And Robin, you're coming out with a new book. And it seems very exciting. And it seems like there's a lot of collaborators in the book too. Well, what I did was I never want to privilege a single narrative, Mm. especially because I'm writing about a communal thing, right? I'm writing about society. I'm not just writing about my body, but I'm, I'm saying that. um, Recording in progress. Sorry. Democ- <laughs> I, I hit the record button. Sorry. Oh, okay. Keep talking. Um, <clears throat> do I need to start over? No, no, no. Cause I'm already recording it here. I okay, just wanted great. to record it as a backup. <laughs> okay. okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about embodiment as a new vision for democracy. And, and we often think about embodiment being a solo enterprise or like this isolated thing that we do by ourselves. But really, embodiment is a relational thing. Embodiment is social. And, and so is democracy. And so what I wanted was I wanted a collection of vignettes that, that spoke about embodiment, that spoke about the body, so that there were multiple narratives. So the book is not, I, I mean, I think some people would say the book is not collaborative because the book is my book, my name is on it. Um, but the book includes other voices because I think it's important always to try to show the plurality of opinions of orientations when we are talking about something like the body or democracy. So in that sense, um, it's collaborative in the sense that I am weaving together vignettes and I'm really excited because that section of the book is called a more perfect union. Mm. Yeah. I think I've seen you alluding to that on your um, Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm super excited about that. Yeah. I I mean, there are certain people that I've started following in recent years, uh, as I've started to branch out of like traditional evangelical Christianity myself. Um, and I think there's like these certain thinkers, influencers that are in that sort of deconstructionist, um, label or umbrella. And, and then I find people like you, you might consider yourself deconstruction. I don't know, but like there's other people who to me are just like bringing us forward. And I have a seminary degree and all that. I'm fairly well read, but like every time I read or hear something that you're saying, I'm always like, I'm, I'm being pushed or invited into something a little bit beyond my comprehension, even though it mostly makes sense. And this idea of tying embodiment to democracy is to me, a very novel idea, at least from my experience. And I have to imagine for a lot of people. um, Well, I hope, I mean, that's the hope, right? I mean, the hope is that 
the book will encourage all of us to rethink our personal commitments and our social commitments. And, and really the book takes folks on a journey, my own journey of like coming to terms with my own body, my mixed race body, my trans body, my queer body, uh, a body that had, that has been socialized into the self-perpetuating elitism of the academy, you know, higher education um, and leaving, you know, sort of always leaving those spaces and yet finding my way back to those spaces because of invitation or what have you. Um, I mean, I began deconstructing when I was in college um, and my, I have, I'm a one trick pony. That's what I tell people. I, all of my degrees are in theology and ethics. Um, I study theology as an undergrad at Hardin Simmons university. And um, they've since closed the, the school of theology, which is really sad to me because it was like the only place where questions from the underside, from the margins could be asked. And and so it was a safe space for me, even though I was the only trans person, I was the only queer person, the only Latinx, the only person of color uh, in in my classes. Um, and and anyways, they've since closed the school of theology because it got too quote unquote liberal. But I I started deconstructing at an early age because I was confronted with a classroom that was comprised of cis white males who were the only ones called to ministry. And I felt as though I had a calling to ministry. Uh, I I never did know that it would be what I'm doing now. Um, But I began deconstructing a very uh, early age, you know, in my late teens and um, started reading deconstruction philosophy as well you know, the father of deconstruction is Jacques Derrida. And, and so I, I probably have a more politicized orientation to deconstruction. It's not just about asking questions for me. It is about living the questions. It is about um, how um, these well thought out certitudes or belief patterns compromise us in a world that is deeply suffering. Uh, and so, um, I don't know. I mean, the deconstruction piece, I mean, it's a, it's a novelty right now, right? Like it's the buzzword. Um, and, and I want to say to folks that I'm, I'm glad folks are asking questions and pushing back. Uh, and if it's not politicized, then you may, you may be participating in something that compromises you. And so I always want to invite folks into the social practices of deconstruction, right? Like, where do you buy your coffee? Where do you buy your groceries? Where do you buy your gasoline? These are also part of deconstruction because I grew up in evangelical Christianity. I was a Southern Baptist for a very long time. Uh, did a whole bunch of Beth Moore Bible studies <laughs> in, in, when I was a teenager. And, 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 and she doesn't go far enough. Right. And so if we are still talking about conversion um, or proselytizing, then we are still participating in settler colonial logic that is harm producing. And so I want to invite people into what I call a new fold of theology, one that addresses the underside of history, those who are most impacted by oppression but also invites us into another possible world. And I believe that those of us who follow a brown Palestinian Jewish rabbi uh, can create another possible world, but it takes us living the questions, not just asking questions and reducing our questions to simple thought. These are complex ideas that people have put together uh, over millennia that has accelerated harm. And so we need to unravel ourselves from the bullshit, as I say, <laughs> to get free. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm continuing to put myself in places where I feel the feeling I might've felt 
in youth group when I was like seventh grade or something, when somebody's teaching me something new and it sounds better than what I'm living. And maybe yeah. at the time, what maybe I, whatever it I was experiencing in school would, when I'd hear about Jesus or the Bible or love and certain, you know, themes, I'd say this is better than the context I'm living now at my public school. And, yeah. but then, then you just, you, you sort of plateau or stagnate and I'm like, okay, well, where's the new, inspirational stuff. And it's like every time, like, again, every time I'm listening to you, I feel that way. And I feel, you know, uh, a Sean Crawley's another person we've interviewed a few times on the podcast. And he's always talking about this idea of otherwise possibilities, which has become a yep. theme for us. And it sounds like that's something similar of what you're invoking. Um, that there's something different than the status quo that we can imagine a better world. And I love that you're tying it to sort of this idea of, not just an idea, but uh, t- tangible action. Like it can't just be like sitting and thinking in the academy or even on a podcast. You know, it's like we can talk right. about these ideas, but like, yeah, where did you buy your coffee? Um, where, where are you getting your products and yeah. how are you living? Yeah, it's 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 so important. I mean, I'm, that's obvious, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, I know there's not a question there necessarily, but um, for you, uh, how... How has it been, um, have you like turned your back entirely from engaging with traditional evangelical culture? Is it just in the academy or finding more progressive spaces like this to share your content? Or is there, have you experienced any sort of success in, in moving people along into this way of thinking? Uh, you know, I mean, um, yes and no, right. Uh, I, I still go back. I mean, there's a reason why I left my faculty post in Berkeley to move home to the South. It was to return home to my roots. And I've, you know, written about that and spoken a lot about that. Um, And so the coming home has been met with both my own suspicions, but my own retrievals as well. Mm. And I think we need to remember that any hermeneutics that we practice, any way of interpreting uh, the world should be met with suspicion and the practices of retrieval. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had, I I don't really think of my work in the terms of success or outcomes. Um, It's about relationship and I've been able to develop relationship with people who are on a journey who who are um, floundering, who are excited, you know, all, all across the board, right? And and some of those people have said, yeah, I think you're onto something and let's continue to talk. And other people are just not ready, right? Uh, and, and it's, you know, the thing about evangelicalism, and it was the thing that I let go of the first immediately, which was the politics of certainty, that there was, there was, you know, evangelicals are hell bent on the logic of certainty. And for me, when I read scripture, there's nothing certain in scripture. Um, There's a lot of wondering and wondering, W-A-N-D-R and W-O-N-D-R. Yeah. Uh, Which feels to me uh, like a lack of certainty, Um, there's a lot of questions throughout scripture. There's a lot of outfoxing the empire. Um, Jesus himself outfoxed the empire. And, and to me, that doesn't feel like certainty or the logic of certainty or the politics of certainty. And so, you know, my deconstruction probably started with giving up certainty and actually embracing doubt and I even have divine doubt or tattooed on my hands as a way to live out that orientation that, that I am, that I am wonderfully made in this universe. And also I live with a great amount of doubt. And, and, and in fact, I think the most honest, the most honest thing I can say is to be Christian is to say, I don't know. It is to be agnostic. I don't have the epistemological capacity to know for certain whether X, Y, or Z exists. 
but but that's what faith is about. And so for me, um, that that is where people can't, people are just not there yet. People, some people are not able to see through the facade around this logic of certainty. And then the politics that come from it, the way we organize entire churches around certainty. And that's what I mean when I say politics of certainty, a way of organizing the corporate body. Politics is not about Republican or Democrat, though the colloquial use, that's how people talk about politics. But, you know, politics in a philosophical sense is the ways in which we organize behaviors and practices and habits into something. And the ways in which evangelical churches um, organize people into a politics of certainty is very scary to me. And people are just expected to trust and not to be ableist, but they're expected to trust blindly. And, and I think that accelerates harm, right? There, there's, there's no consent there. Mm -hmm. It's just the expectation is to believe. And I think for me, um, you know, these questions around doubt and certainty um, really started around um, why, well, the sort of classic feminist question, how can a male savior save women? So I started reading a lot of feminist theology early on when I was in college, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, way before I had a vision to go to seminary or do a PhD. And these questions really animated my deconstruction, right? Like, oh, like this is a really powerful question. What do we do with gender? And oh, gender is a social construct. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is as gender trouble is coming out by Judith Butler and bodies that matter um, that I later read in seminary. But, you know, I'm asking a lot of these pivotal questions that essentially just created conditions for me to walk away on my own terms. And, and the thing that I tell people is that you don't have to stay. You can have a spiritual thirst. You can have a hunger for the sacred. You can have ritual and you don't have to stay in something that is oppressive and accelerates harm. And in fact, I would say God doesn't condone staying. God wants you to be free or the sacred or the divine, however we want to talk about, about this. Um, and, and if we read the stories of Jesus, which I sort of appeal to a more narrative approach around, around God, and which is a whole other sort of philosophical tangent that we can go on. But if we want to talk about how do we follow Jesus in the age of empire, I think it is walking away from systems and structures that harm us. And, and unfortunately, in evangelical Christianity, people's agency gets taken away because of the theology. And so they don't know that they have a choice to leave. They don't know that that's an option. And that's probably where I spend the most amount of time of connecting the dots for people and helping people see like, yeah, hey, you have a choice in this. You can stay or you can leave and, and, and it's okay to leave. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that it's, it seems like a conspiracy, although I don't know if there's that much, it's not like, I think it's like obviously um, subconscious defense mechanisms that collectively get worked out in, in the form of institutions. So I don't think there's any sort of grand true conspiracy, but this idea of, um, using certain, or maybe even you could say weaponizing certain Christian beliefs or postures or theologies to, you know, like discourage questioning. But, but, but even this idea of like Christian community, like sticking together no matter what and, and trying to see the best in each other and not leaving the community and maybe certain 
passages or stories get referenced from acts or something like that of like yeah. staying together. Uh, and, and so, so, I mean, I've, I've felt like the times where I've left Christian community that I'm not being a Christian or I'm failing to live up to the standards that I, you know, preach or something like that. Uh, right. so it's so nice for somebody, a prophet like person to come along and say, it's okay for you to leave and maybe even more moral and more just, and it's not just tolerated by God, but maybe even condoned and approved of by God, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really important to, for people to hear that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to think about our ethics of engagement. If our ethics of engagement are contrived and manipulated where we don't have agency, that's called sin and oppression. Yeah, amen. But, but, if, our, but if our ethics of engagement are something that is invitation consent base where we have agency yeah. uh, that I would say those are conditions where we can flourish. Yeah. I mean, another thing that's sort of baked into, I guess, certain forms of Christianity that I see pop up in our DMS all the time is just this idea that you can, it's, it's really hard to get to engage with anybody that is sort of committed to thinking this way, but like, um, you can't question God. And so when you question theology or question the church, you're somehow questioning God. Right. And it's like, I don't, that's a sort of a non-starter for a conversation because we can't, for for certain people can't get outside of a certain perspective and and critique it on on the merits of its, how it's functioning in the world, you know, a church or a system. Yeah. I mean, um, I would say this is part of critical thinking and and the thing that evangelical Christianity doesn't do is it does not encourage critical thinking and people just become automatons and robots. And that's very scary. That, that is cult-like. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if we believe in an all powerful God, which there are lots of problems with that language, <laughs> then then God can handle our questions if God is all powerful, right? So, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I'm all for the questions. I mean, I, I just recorded a podcast for my own podcast and talked about God being a fugitive. And that's why God encourages fugitivity because God knows what it's like to be a fugitive. Mm because Jesus himself was a fugitive when he was a baby. Um, so I, you know, I, I have lots of ideas about this. Uh, deconstruction uh, has to be lived out practically. It's not just, uh, it's not just a thinking project. It's, it's actually uh, people's lives and livelihoods. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have gone through the Academy and come out on the other end intact uh, with more questions to ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's such a beautiful thing, but it's, it's like on the one hand, it's, it's life-giving and fun to a certain type of personality to ask those questions, but it's also so important for society to have those people that are willing to do it. And I think I always wanted to have a youth group called Rebel, but no church liked that idea. And now I host a youth group called Rebel, and it was sort of created under the idea that that it's necessary psychologically for teenagers to rebel and for us to support that. But then also, as I continue to talk to people, to you, it's it means a lot to society to have teens who have been freed up to think for themselves because that's the speech yeah. I always give them. I'm like, you feel disagree with me? That's like that's like the highest compliment you could give me as your youth pastor is you disagree with me or question me. Yeah. Or, and uh, and to launch students that feel like they have that capacity and that it's a good thing. But that that goes with my a question I have for you is, is like coming out of your high school years, what what was going on in you that gave you a sense of permission to be asking those questions? And I feel like it's a rare thing for someone that young to start to be reading deep books of theology or asking questions about feminism or reading Judith Butler or Derrida or stuff like that. Well, I mean, it's very strange. I'm a bit of a nerd. Um, (laughs) I mean, two things happen. One, I survived a brain aneurysm at 16, Mm. almost lost my life. I was clinically dead for a period of time. Um, And I felt a call to ministry and was told no because of my Mm. genitalia. Mm. And so those two events 
uh, felt like, you know, one event, I almost lost my life, What you know, was dead. And the other felt like I had been executed by the church, you know, suffocated. Um, and I was determined, I, I was determined to live, to live out my call. And I knew that the church was wrong. And so I'd had this really great neurosurgeon who fixed my brain because it broke. Hmm. Um, and I just sank myself into the, the study of theology, you know, um, for years. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, I had two professors in my undergrad, Rob Sellers and Dan Stiver, two cis white hetero guys who said to me, you should go, you should go to seminary. Mm. And they encouraged my questions, Mm. you know? So, so on the one hand, I had been cut off from the church saying that, no, there's no place for you. And yet here are these two cis white guys, straight guys saying to me, you have something to offer. And I, I was like, okay, let's do it. I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for those guys. Um, I mean, obviously grateful for you to just have the desire and the, um, talent to even start down that path, you know? Um, but then to have it supported too, I know how important that is. Uh, what, what were, what were some of like the, early formative writers for you or books that you were reading in seminary or anything like that, that sort of, I don't know, added fuel to the fire, I guess. Well, by the time I got to seminary, cause I, I did some postgraduate work after my undergrad. Um, I was, I um, had just turned 26 and, um, and so I had already read a lot of feminist theology Rosemary Ruther, Elizabeth Fusler Fiorenza, um, you know, but sort of the the first wave of feminist thinkers, and and then I started reading in my mid twenties a bunch of Chicana feminists um, and Latin American feminist theology, and and I was reconnecting with my own sort of cultural, racial, ethnic heritage being a mixed race Latinx. And, and that sort of gave me a whole new perspective that these questions are not just white questions. These are questions that people of color have, that indigenous people have. And, and so how do we create the kind of world that we want Obviously, I read all of the dead white guys, <laughs> and and I know that I know that some people choose not to do that. I yeah. know that some people say I'm not going to read Tillich or Heidegger or any of those other guys, but I actually have read the tradition, um, and I I've read the Bart, the Tillich, the the ever the everybody St. Thomas and everyone, mm. um, and and I did that because I wanted to have the full picture. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to isolate myself to one genre. I wanted to be able to argue all of the points. And what's so interesting is that when people hear that I'm trans, queer, and Latinx, they, they, they put me in a box that I can only argue certain things. Mm. And, and really, you know, um, that under, I mean, it, 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 it undermines me to be put in a box because I want to have a robust conversation, right? Because these are complex issues. These aren't just single issues. Um, so I became, uh, what I call an inter multi and anti-disciplinary scholar. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I, I read across traditions, across genres. I use multiple, and disparate authors in conversation that you wouldn't likely find in the same conversation. And I reject all of it because <laughs> it's all a social construct. And so um, I do a very interesting um, 
project and 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 this new book that's coming out which we started talking about the body becoming essentially politicized theology through mm. story and narrative mm. um i've stopped talking about myself as a public theologian because now everyone calls himself a public theologian some of some of which don't have any theological training <laughs> So I've I've started talking about myself as a politicized theologian. Ooh. That actually, what I'm doing is I am politicizing these structures of belief and confession, um, so that we can get free. That's another creepy tactic I think of like traditional evangelical Christianity is is saying don't politicize anything, right? Um, and keep it separate, obviously, and and especially yeah. like a pastor shouldn't be talking about anything political from the pulpit. Um, at the last church I was at, which was a very perfect manifestation of all the things we're talking about, I preached one time and just said, knew how how it skewed sort of traditional conservative Republican, this church. And I, I just said, um, we care about refugees. That's all I said. And I literally put up a picture of us picking up refugees from the airport. And there were Facebook reviews that day. Pastor was too political, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, um, yeah and and and... Again, that that's that's a realization I think I only had recently. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, I just kind of took it for granted. I said, yeah, no, you shouldn't talk about politics through the pulpit. And you're you're not even saying it in a low key way. You're saying, no, no, that's what we're doing. Everything should be politicized. Yeah, I love. I mean, that. theology is theology is political. Yeah, and and if we think that it is apolitical, I would say that that is sin mm-hmm. and that is oppression. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's um. It's really, it's really tough just to have this um, sort of like void or or gap in terms of language because even a word like empire that I'm so used to using now, like that came up on my Facebook post recently. I said something about like not colluding with empire, and I had really intelligent Christians who've known me for a long time be like, "What is empire? I've never heard that phrase before." I was like, "Wow, we can't even we can't even address that we live in America with." worldly power and weapons and right <laughs> and tie that to Rome or anything like that. You know, um, it's all about your personal faith and your personal relationship with Jesus. Obviously we know that, but, um, so I'm wondering in terms of just some of the content of the book and your own journey with your body, like, again, without having read the book, but some of the content that I just picked up on in terms of Facebook, there is obviously a pushback on like, you know, what, how a body should look in the world. Um, and our, I mean, this is obvious, but like just, um, making space for other types of bodies and not even making space, but like seeing, it seems like our, um, addiction and toxic addiction to a, 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 a particular type of a body. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess what of the conversations you've been having, like in terms of your book and, as this comes out, like, um, what, what is it that you're wanting people to know or? Well, I want people to know that it's important to have a relationship with your body and bodies come in all shapes, sizes, colors, configurations, etc. And, and that our individual bodies actually make up our democracy. Democracy is not like a box that you check or, um, or a structure. Democracy is actually an orientation of way of being in the world. And so we, we, we right now um, are part of our democratic body, part of our cultural body. And the ways that we treat ourselves show up in the ways that we treat others. And so when we begin to have a generous relationship with ourselves we can begin to have generous relationships with others. So much of our issues right now, racism, transphobia, queerphobia, homophobia, trans antagonism, trans misogyny, et cetera, are wrapped up in our own internalized bullshit because we don't know how to treat ourselves well. So because we don't know how to treat ourselves well, we don't treat each other well, and therefore our cultural body suffers and our democratic body is failing. Yes, uh, policies matter, but policies are made up because of the way we think about ourselves in relationship with others. 
And we and I think we forget that. We 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 think we can go to the ballot box in November or whenever the the elections are and click our candidate and then by clicking our candidate our our policies will be made what they need to be made. But what we don't realize is that policies are enacted because of our embodied or disembodied reality. And if we and if we don't care about the underside of history, we probably also don't care about our own bodies. Oh, it's so, so that's that's yeah. that's the argument of the book. And I think one thing that seems to be needing clarification oftentimes is maybe call it like the health industry or something like that. When you say we're going to get into touch or have a relationship with your body, oftentimes it seems to mean something like um, taking, you know, turning yourself into some sort of uh, health nut athlete and, 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 you know, uh, using a lot of discipline to get your body into looking a particular way. And I, at least again, what I pick up just from Facebook and, and other leaders and thinkers, I think too, is, is to be a little bit more gentle and moderate with your body and not, right. not get so wrapped up in this standard and this like, you know, mistreatment essentially of your body in a yeah. harsh way. Well, I, I would say that a lot of people who, are in the health industry or fitness industry are terribly disembodied. Um, they are doing things to their bodies that are unnatural, that are actually harmful and, and not, I mean, they're doing things that, that are in opposition to the very thing that I'm arguing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've gotten sucked into it so many times. I mean, even just trying, I, I still don't quite know how healthy intermittent fasting is, but I'm like, okay, that's a new craze. So I'm going to try that. And then yeah. I feel sick and I crash and I need mini naps and I don't feel like myself and I have a fuzzy brain. <laughs> I'm like, right. this isn't working for me. Um, yeah. Or just the idea that, you know, you need less sleep so you can be more productive and then you can't take naps. And <laughs> Oh, you know, I take a siesta every day. I love that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to shut out the bullshit and I'm going to take a siesta. And I'm, people wonder why I'm so productive and it's because I rest. Yeah. And rest is political. Yeah. It's, it's so weird how the church colludes with this. Cause I, I worked at a church for 11 years that I thought was very healthy. And so I was sort of sheltered from a lot of these things. And then I went to this other church and it was this culture of needing to be in the office every day from nine to five, whether or not you were doing anything important. Um, and it was just, it was a bigger church with like 90 staff. And it was just, I was just like, gosh, I didn't realize. I thought, I thought to a certain extent in terms of like being representation of the kingdom of God, that we were offering an alternative to sort of that corporate capitalist workaholic mindset. And that's sort of the lifestyle I'd been living for a while as a pastor, but as much as I hated working at that church, it gave me, it made, it made me less naive. And I was like way more yeah. concerned about Christians and churches after that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I, this stuff all feels very personal. So that's like, obviously if you don't want to talk about, it, but like, how does that play out in, in addition to like daily siestas and stuff, but how does it play out for you personally, like listening to your body and cultivating a relationship with your body? Well, I mean, I've been on a journey and it's not, it's not perfected. Uh, but you know, I, I also live on the autism spectrum. Mm. And so it's, I have to listen really carefully to, to what my body is saying to me. And so, for example, um, I'm really sensitive to light. And so, um, I have to keep the house low lit unless I'm reading. Uh, and I just have to listen very carefully. So I've had, I've had to tune myself to my body, which is a new practice and I'm still working on it. Um, but, but I mean, it's an everyday learning. Uh, I probably will always be learning. Yeah. Um, but I'm hopeful that by listening to my body, I can learn to listen better to other people's bodies and be a better citizen. Oh, it just, it, it it's, uh, I don't know. 
when you when you talk like this, it just adds. Uh, I think it gives like a big permission slip for people yeah. to listen to their own bodies, but to to think that by listening to your own body, it's not just listening to other people's bodies, or maybe even becoming more accepting or curious about other bodies. But you know, listening applies to all fields. So if you can listen to your body, you can listen to all sorts of other things. It's just yeah. another thing to be in tune with. Yeah, we're not trying to judge it through particular lenses, but trying to be like, here's my unique body. What is that? Um, yeah, gosh, I love that. Um, so I, there, there was a, another thing you had brought up earlier that might be fun to talk about. And I know this is sort of a meandering conversation, but that's typically how it works. Um, and you talked about, um, looking at Jesus and Jesus's life and teachings more through a narrative lens. And I imagine you're saying something along the lines of like, not trying to think of it in a systematic theology way or, or a set of doctrines or belief statements. But what 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 do you mean by looking at it more in, in a narrative lens? Well, I, I mean, I will say I think it all does fit together. So yeah. it it can be systematized. Yeah. Um, I just probably take a different approach to systematic theology than than other folks. Um, but what I mean by that is that there is a story to the life of Jesus, and what does that story teach us? I think it teaches us kindness and empathy and compassion, um, sustainability. You know, these are things that we can pull from the stories of Jesus and map on to our to our context today to try to live the stories out in a way that can make a difference and that can create another possible world. That's what I mean by story and narrative. I love that. And I think one of the things that's coming up for me as we talk is I, this isn't a Christian podcast, but we're, you know, clear with listeners that like we do Christian things and we come from Christian backgrounds and we often talk to people like you who are sort of, you know, I don't know, in the, in the realm of like progressive deconstructionist type Christians. But I love this thing that you were talking about earlier of like essentially saying it's agnosticism, but we have these labels that get in the way of, you know, so, I mean, for me growing up, that was like, don't talk to an atheist or an agnostic and that's scary. Right. And, and say, it's, yeah, like essentially saying, I don't know, which is agnosticism, but it's also still saying, and it's still under the label or umbrella of Christian. Yeah. And, and so I think I love the idea of giving listeners permission to live this life of questions and to know that like, if somebody felt that they were part of a Christian community or engaging with a certain way of thinking about Jesus or the Bible or Christianity that they didn't like. And then they, and then they say, now I'm opting out of that entire project. And that's fine too, obviously. I love that you, you know, say people should leave if it's harmful, yeah. but that there's yeah. other ways to in, be invited into the broader conversation. Yeah. And let me say this, that I would not identify as a progressive liberal right, or, a right. progressive or a liberal progressive. And I don't know that I would identify as as Christian in in the nominal sense. Um, I follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus was never trying to start a religion. Um, a religion was started to remember the practices, but because it was institutionalized and co opted by the by the Roman Empire, I, you know. It's empire religion now. And so, yeah, I, I, um, I oftentimes get uh, lobbed into or onto progressive Christian thinkers. Yeah. But, but progressivism and liberalism, they don't reflect my theological or my political commitments. And neither does traditional thought or conservatism. Uh, those, those categories are part of 19th century liberalism, which does not reflect my theological or political commitments. And so, you know, I'm a liberationist and um, I'm very concerned with the underside of history and the the margins of the margins. Um, and I think that when we pay attention to, to those voices, we get a little bit closer to the beloved community. I love that too. I think there's still certain words that, you know, I got, I, I grew up really pretty conservative and there's certain words that like liberal or progressive were sort of dangerous words. And then I would say even in my own last two years, I would have said 
liberation or abolition even were sort of dangerous words. And then when you sort of get more comfortable using words like that, they, they seem to become more important. Not only am I more comfortable talking about liberation and abolition and stuff like that, but I'm, I'm seeing how absolutely and utterly important it is. Yeah. Um, so that seems, yeah. that's a nice reference point just to think of you as a, a liberationist or I even love this idea of, uh, uh, what, what, what did we call it? A, uh, a political theologian, you said a politicized theologian, politicized theologian. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, you know, I, I think you would probably be put in the category loosely speaking of a prophet, you know, and it seems like it takes a lot of courage or strength or creativity. It seems like it might be kind of lonely, you know, like, um, there are a lot of people out there who don't want to ruffle feathers, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you don't seem to mind doing that, although I'm sure it comes at a cost. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind doing it um, because I believe that's part of my calling is to disrupt the status quo. Um, and I've taken a vow of contemplation. And so I take my vocation as theologian or politicized theologian very seriously um, it, it is lonely. And, you know, those who are closest to me hear the stories, uh, hear about the hate mail. I, I'm very grateful for my partner who can really hold, um, the complexity of, of my work. The fact that, um, I am giving care out all the time to people and, um, and, and, you know, have to close shop up so I can eat and, and be with my family. But my partner, um, who is an artist and um, just all around amazing human, really knows how to tend to the emotional distress that I suffer. Um, and, and, and you have to remember, a prophet is not welcome in their own home. And so uh, I get a lot of hate mail. I'll say that, you know, uh, people, people push back a lot on, on what I'm saying. I was doxxed back in the spring on Twitter. Um, you know, it's not, it, it comes with a cost, the work that I'm doing. Um, but I, but I believe in living out my vocation as faithfully as I can. I love this vow of contemplation that, that also just so many things you're saying make me so happy. Um, is that, is there a tattoo that says that vow of contemplation? That seems like a good tattoo. <laughs> no, no, not, not yet. <laughs> yeah. What's, I mean, aside from being true to yourself, what's the payoff for you? Like what, what brings you joy in the midst of all the, the complexity and challenging and, uh, helping people rethink certain things like, I mean, I've gotten to meet some amazing people. Yeah. And, and so, you know, for example, uh, I was on Pete Holmes podcast last year, and then he ended up doing the book cover release, uh, I and saw pre-order that. Party. <laughs> you know, and so it's, it's like, that's the sweet spot, right? Yeah. Like, like that's someone who, who says, yeah, Dr. Robin, you're doing something important. I want to be a part of that. And so when, when I see that, I, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on to something here. And, and also I'm not doing it on my own. You know, I work with a whole team of people who help to get out activist theology as a project. And, and we, we do it in conjunto. We do it with a, with a radical sense of togetherness. Uh, and we're just getting ready to launch um, the front porch, which is going to be a place for deconstruction and reconstruction mm. and, life after deconstruction. Uh, so I'm super excited about that. Um, is that a podcast? What's, what's the front porch? So it's an app, it's an okay. app driven community and, um, we're, we're, we're launching it on September 1st and people can go to atporch.com at porch.com and, um, and sign up for the community. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're just trying to help people, and, and be of service. I'm so glad to know about that because again, like I'm working with over 400 youth all over the world and it's 14 to 25 year olds. And I feel like 
so many of them would love to join you guys there. Yeah. And we're going to have someone in Europe, uh, who's, um, who's a comrade of ours to, to manage the European mm-hmm. part of it. Cause we do have a worldwide audience as well. Uh, but we'd love to have as many of your folks who would yeah. want to join. Um, and uh, we're hoping uh, to incorporate in mental health, a mental health provider yeah. um, so that someone is there with credentials who can answer questions about things like anxiety and oh. rejection and whatnot. So we're being really thoughtful about it. We're really looking forward to launching it. And I can certainly let you know. Please do. Uh, more, but people can go to atporch.com Perfect. to find out more. I'm glad you said that. Um, I know a lot of our students listen to this too. Um, uh, I think, I mean, just the name, I love that because I just picture being on a rocking chair on a porch in exactly. the south somewhere, drinking some sweet tea and yeah. talking about deconstruction <laughs> and exactly. reconstruction. Um, yeah, you know, invoking Pete Holmes is really interesting just for me too because he was a, he was on the youth pastor track, you know, and uh, I think had become an atheist, but then I think there are certain gateway thinkers or theologians that might be a little bit more public or visible. And maybe sadly you could say we all need a white male theologian to be the gateway. <laughs> um, yeah. but I know he made a deep connection with Rob Bell and then found Richard Rohr. And I think it's so cool that the journey didn't end there and Pete Holmes found you cause that's where it should yeah. lead, you know, something more like that. Uh, and then even in my own journey, you invoked Paul Tillich earlier. And I think too, like, if you're going to read somebody like Paul Tillich, I, I think it, it felt, it felt like my first whisperings of that concept of otherwise possibilities. And he was saying yeah. certain things like, you know, these, this language and symbol symbols being used in scripture and in traditional theology needs to be re uh, imagined by modern theologians. Like we need new language, new symbols, new ways of being in community. And, you know, compared to Bart or somebody like that, it, yeah. it felt so much more vibrant. Um, and, and I think for me, my own personal journey is similar. Like once you have that permission or that mindset that, that we're all here, we're, we're the people here living here and now engaging with the divine or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and then, okay, so what are you going to do? You know, it's like, it's, it's new theology, it's new ways of thinking. And so that I, I, for me personally, it's like, that's why I get so excited about finding people like you who are really, really truly doing it. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, so I mean, moving forward aside from this app and stuff like that, like what do you have on the horizon in terms of your work that you're really excited about? Well, you know, we're still negotiating the Delta variant right. and <laughs> the other mutations. So um, I've got a few gigs in the fall. Uh, my book comes out on Trans Day of Visibility in March of 2022. So, you know, I'm kind of watching COVID yeah. uh, and trying to figure out what to do. I, I am teaching. I, I do, you know, I'm on faculty at a couple different places. So I do teach. Um, and so I'll be spending most of my time teaching and preparing for class and I, you know, I've got a couple more books, I, book ideas that I'm going to be fleshing out. Uh, so I'll stay busy. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, another question, I guess, in a playful way is, you know, typically, honestly, when we're doing the podcast, it's in the evening and I am a big whiskey fan. Do you have a particular drink that you prefer? Looking at your liquor cabinet right now. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're on Zoom and you can see a portion of yeah. my liquor cabinet. Yeah. Let me let me let me turn it so that you can see I love all it. of it. Yeah, no, I wish I was there. It, was, it looks fun. Um, I I'm a big fan of bourbon and mezcal. Yeah. So I like a mezcal Negroni. Um, mm. I love a good old fashioned or Manhattan. I love an El Camino, which is mezcal and bourbon. Dang. Um, I got to make yeah. one of those. I feel like we have similar taste palettes because I love those smokier, even more bitter, like Campari yeah. uh, type taste. So uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I hope I hope we get to hang out someday when COVID's all over or something like that. I'll do a tour. Yeah, I love I love Seattle. So yeah. hopefully I can make my way up there. Yeah. 
Um, well, I know I, I wanted to schedule this for like 90 minutes just to have a little buffer, but I, I, I loved talking to you and I hope we get oh, to do it again. Great. I think yeah. you, you model out the thing that we've sort of set out to do as a vocation. I have it written down here in my office. Like our vocation is to help people live a less certain, more curious life. But with that in mind, it's, it's sort of like, well, how do we do it? How do we yeah. live less certain, more curious lives? Um, I think to people that are on the journey with us, it's, it's a, it's something that we're all intrigued by. You know, I, yeah. I, I fail every day in being curious. I'm, I'm yeah. always gravitating towards certainty. Yeah. Um, and so I think, uh, I mean, part of, part of it that I think we're trying to embody even on the podcast is talking to people like you, you know, that's just one of the tools you can do is talk to people who are thinking outside the traditional boxes and stuff right. like that. Right. Um, right. So I, I, I think like, obviously it's just nice to have this conversation with you, but if it in any way introduces somebody to your work, um, I, again, like I will just say just from your, just from purely your Facebook posts, I have learned so much. Um, and I, I try to repost as much as possible, but as you know, if something is nuanced on Facebook, it gets two likes, you know, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, it's important nevertheless. I mean, it's had a huge impact on me. I just hope you know. Oh, that. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, thank you so much, Dr. Robin. Oh, it's great to be here. Yeah. I'm, I'm so grateful for you and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to share this conversation with people and, um, I honestly hope we do it again because uh, my co-host Mace uh, is a preschool teacher and so is working during the day, but maybe we can schedule a time someday where both of us can talk to you. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, have a good rest of your day. Maybe if you haven't had a siesta yet or something like that, you can. <laughs> I'm on my way. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So nice Thank to talk you. to you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.